So with that, uh, let me introduce Steve Levinson. Thank you, Lyra, for that kind introduction. Thanks to the sponsors for, of this series. Um, so today I'm going to talk um, about the, what we can learn about human nature in some very broad sense uh, by looking at other cultures. But before I do that, I just want to make a few remarks about the uh, peculiar age that we are in, um, uh, with this uh, rise right across the liberal democracies of uh, xenophobia. Um, and um, the, what's sort of curious about I mean, xenophobia is always with us in one form or another. But um, what's curious just about the present uh, rise of xenophobia is it's occurring in the, all the Western liberal democracies at a time of unparalleled prosperity. Not evenly shared, it has to be said, uh, but still. Um, and, and it's unexpected in the way. Um, this you, we see, of course, uh, here in the States. Um, and we see it um, also in Britain. Uh, with the Brexit uh, phenomenon. Uh, and the sentiment here uh, that's expressed uh, here is, uh, is this sort of fear of uh, the majority culture being overridden <laughs> one way or another. And again, we see the same phenomenon here in the States. So um, uh, uh, one of the, you know, I think the, the roots of xenophobia are, are multiple, and I won't go too much into them. But... Um, uh, but one of the clear roots is just sheer ignorance. And one way to see that ignorance is just uh, to, uh, it's just this, an example of it is the confusion um, in the, the minds of the general population with, of Sikhs with Muslims, um, uh, with disastrous results. And uh, what's sort of ironic about this is, of course, Sikhs were the great uh, anti-Muslim shock troops of 17th century India. Uh, and so to see this is uh, uh, really rather a shocking uh, uh, ignorance. And you see exactly the same uh, ignorance uh, in the UK. Um, now, the, um, this, you can see also this ignorance is expressed in this inverse relationship between familiarity uh, with immigrants and an anti-immigrant vote. Again, you see this uh, uh, relationship, again, right across Europe and also in many parts of the States. So the less familiar people are with immigrants, the greater the fear. Uh, so it's in that context that I wanted uh, to um, make some just remarks about the importance and the uh, wonders <coughs> of cultural diversity uh, and what it all has to offer us. So it's good to just remember that of all the cultures in the world, Western culture is a sort of giant potpourri of borrowings uh, from other cultures. And you can see that uh, if you just think about you know, the origins of our alphabet, of our mathematics, and indeed you know, the three great religions of the book uh, uh, from uh, the Near East, um, and uh, of the uh, technological inventions that lie behind um, uh, Columbus's uh, uh, trip to the States, so the, uh, to America, to so the discovery of America, the compass, uh, and, of course, the gunpowder that uh, uh, made it all uh, the conquest of, um, of, the conquest by the West of so many places, actually. Uh, all of this comes from China, of course, uh, in the early modern period. So, um, uh, I think it's also important uh, to understand that, you know, cultural evolution is just a wonderful discovery uh, system. Uh, you can discover the most wonderful sort of solutions to existential problems. And uh, we see that, for example, uh, in the uh, gradual evolution of uh, good cultivars, which have taken millennia to, in the case of these two, for example, uh, the removal uh, of, of poisons um, from these plants, uh, or in these, uh, the, uh, uh, the hybridization of different species that has gone uh, into um, uh, getting a large cob of maize or uh, a, a, a banana that's not full of seeds. So although 
uh, these inventions take millennia, they are, of course, quickly borrowed. And we can see that in many, uh, in many ways. You can see it uh, uh, <laughs> here. Um, uh, of course, we are the, the great robbers uh, <laughs> of good inventions. Um, and uh, you see it uh, in almost every domain. Uh, uh, good ideas uh, have uh, been borrowed uh, from around the world. So, um, it's sort of, it, just to give you an example that really affects the bottom line uh, and the jugular, as it were, think about drug discovery. Many of the fundamental drugs that we use today have come from other people's uh, medicine cupboards. And uh, so you think about morphine or the anti-malarials. Um, and if you compare this to the um, inc sort of incredible cost of just experimentally finding compounds uh, that will turn eventually into decent medicines. Uh, astronomical costs. Um, and so because of that, we still to this day rely on borrowing other people's drug discoveries uh, that have come, uh, in many cases, like well over 100 fundamental drugs that we use today, have come from uh, ethno medical sources, so small tribes and so on that have discovered herbs and other uh, sources of, uh, of medicines. And we're still new ones coming in all the time uh, from this source. Um, so uh, we should really, you know, we really should be grateful to the cultural diversity for delivering all of these wonders to us. We should all think these borrowings are not all material. Um, some of them are just ideas uh, uh, and practices. So the, so the sexual revolution uh, came about because anthropologists um, working in the South Seas, and Malinowski in the first instance, uh, working in the Trobrians, um, ex explored human sexuality and noticed that uh, adolescent uh, sexual experimentation didn't lead to the disasters that everybody expected, <laughs> but, um, but led to stable uh, and, um, and uh, very good human relationships. Uh, and so in, in the case of Malinowski, this, uh, the, his findings went straight through into psychoanalysis and later into the 19, in the 1960s, surfacing again um, in writings in the, uh, in, in the liberation, sexual liberation, liberation movement. And we see it again in Margaret Mead, um, who fed directly into feminist literature. So these are just some examples um, of the ways in which we have, one way or another, uh, benefited uh, from um, fertilization, as it were, cross-fertilization from ideas and practices uh, and discoveries uh, in other cultures. Now I want to say something about uh, just the extent of cultural diversity. Here you see a map of New Guinea with the major language families, which, of which there are about 60. Um, and uh, I'm going to just rely for a moment on language as, um, as a kind of proxy uh, for ethnicity. So it, it's a relatively, I mean, it's a very approximate proxy. So you can have two ethnic groups uh, that, that speak the same language. Um, so actually Sikhs and Hindu Punjabis would be a good example. Uh, so there's no shortage of, there's a mismatch between uh, language um, and ethnic groups. However, it's still, I think, the best sort of proxy that we have. Uh, and because we know a lot about languages, we know that there are 7,000 of them. Um, these the green dots here uh, is, is one for each of them. Uh, you can see that the languages are sort of concentrated in the tropics uh, and the subtropics, uh, and we know a lot about that. Um, with these 7,000 languages are grouped into about 450 um, distinct stocks. So these are the largest language families that we were able to uh, reconstruct. So these are languages that we know to be related. And so there are 450 groups, uh, 450 groups where inside each of those groups the languages are related. But outside we, have, we know nothing about the relationships between them. So that, uh, and the time depth of these language families is, some, is generally the order of sort of between five and 10,000 years. So in deep time perhaps there's many of more of these uh, 7,000 are related but we can't now um, find that out. It's not recoverable. Um, so, uh, but these 450 give us 
independent experiments um, in uh, human existence, as it were. And so um, that's a, a good thing to remember that there, is, there are many independent experiments in a way in, a way, uh, in culture and language uh, around the world. Uh, it's important to realize that most of this diversity is in very small groups. So, so over 80% uh, of languages had uh, less than 100,000 speakers. And the, 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 the modal language, the most common type of language, has between 1 and 10,000 speakers. So, the, so actually, the sort of reservoir of cultural diversity are these very small groups uh, around the world. Uh, and of course, they're very vulnerable, uh, a point I'll come back to. Okay, so how can we learn uh, from these uh, 7,000 experiments in how to live? Uh, I think uh, um, there's a nice popular book by Jared Diamond uh, that points out uh, many of the dimensions uh, that, that we might look to. Uh, for example, uh, modes of child rearing, um, ways of looking after old people, um, dispute settlement, um, diet and health, uh, all of these things you can find out a lot about, uh, you know, other potential ways of doing things by looking at uh, these other cultures. Um, so now, what I'd like to now do is sort of mentally transport you to just one of these small groups, it's one of those uh, independent experiments, um, uh, off in the Pacific. And uh, here's the map of New Guinea with Australia at the bottom here. Uh, and I take you to this island called Russell Island, which is uh, about 250 nautical miles offshore of New Guinea. And you can only get there in a boat. It takes you about four days. Uh, there's no airstrip or any other way to get there. Uh, so it's because it's cut off, relatively cut off, uh, that it's, uh, to some extent, to a large extent, um, uh, not felt the, the, the waves of globalization. That, uh, you can, that have obviously taken over many other parts of the world. Small island uh, with just 6,000 people there. Um, they all speak uh, the one language. Uh, it's called Yelitnye. Uh, and uh, it's a language that's not related to any other language in the world. Uh, it, um, it has sounds that are not known uh, from any other language in the world. Just to give you an example, uh, this is the... Um, the, the uh, word for girl. Uh, the initial uh, consonant there is uh, and uh, um, uh, uh, very complicated sound uh, and uh, unique uh, uh, for this particular language. It has an uh, enormous grammatical complexity. Uh, uh, and I won't take you there because it gets, starts to get very uh, uh, technical, uh, but it has a, a, a unique grammatical system. The, the whole way in which the grammar is organized uh, is not found in other languages. Uh, it's also an extremely irregular language. As a result of this, um, people who weren't born there find it almost impossible to learn. So uh, people who married in, for example, uh, hardly ever learn the language properly. <laughs> Okay, so now, um, this, I'll just tell you something this is about the subsistence system. Uh, so this is common to most of the Pacific Island, actually. So basically, uh, they chop down a bit of virgin jungle um, and uh, plant some tubers, uh, and they're completely self-sufficient. They can look after themselves. Of course, they're glad of various imports, and particularly things made of steel, nails, knives, uh, machetes, and so on. Uh, but, um, but they can survive perfectly well uh, without imports. For protein, they rely on the sea, uh, and, um, and they know a fantastic amount about the sea. There are, in this part of the ocean, there are about 1,500 tropical fish, uh, and here, for example, this is one fish species in its different stages of maturation. So tropical fish you know, change color, they change shape, uh, they even change sex, uh, uh, and, um, and you can see that as they get older, uh, they, they just turn completely different. The locals know, <laughs> uh, they know uh, both that the, all of these fish are one, belong to one species, um, and, um, and they have names for each of these stages. Uh, they also know a great deal about uh, the forest, which, of course, they use in all sorts of ways, including um, finding uh, medicines of various kinds. Um, 
And, um, uh, and here, for example, uh, you can see them uh, building a canoe uh, using wooden nails and a stone hammer, <laughs> um, uh, wooden, they're, they're using an extremely hard wood uh, that can be used, uh, essentially, as if it was steel. So political system um, is astonishing in the sense, astonishing to us, in the sense that yeah, there's no policemen, there are no chiefs. Um, and so you end up with actually an almost crimeless world uh, without any apparent authority. So how does this work? <laughs> uh, uh, and um, uh, it partly works because uh, there are people who are very influential. And they're influential by their oratorical skills and by virtue of the fact that they're good redistributors of wealth. And in most of the Pacific, actually, um, uh, the whole point of property here, here by the way, they're just uh, e exchanging uh, uh, valuable stone axe blades. But um, uh, in most of the, of the uh, Pacific, uh, the whole point of property is not to acquire it and hold it, but to redistribute it. Because through redistributing it, you get um, influence and, um, and fame. Uh, and so every child learns uh, to share, uh, and they also learn to argue that patch, because if they are accused of uh, doing something wrong, they better be able to defend themselves uh, with verbal skill, and they can. So uh, top, this is rather topical. Um, uh, 20 years ago, a, a, an amazingly huge cyclone hovered over this island, just like uh, Harvey hovered over Houston. And, um, and did an amazing amount of damage. So uh, it wiped out all the food crops. Um, it took, actually, there wasn't a single green leaf left on this island. This tropical island was uh, because of salt spray, right up to 1,000 meters. So uh, as a result of there being no leaves, um, there were plagues of caterpillars, because the caterpillars didn't have, didn't have the tree leaves to eat anymore. Uh, and so when you, if you tried to plant anything, it would immediately get eaten. So it was actually a total disaster. And the reef was uh, covered with sand, so there were no fish to eat. Uh, and uh, they would have been absolutely, um, uh, uh, well, they would have died, actually, had it not been for the fact that, um, by consensus, they uh, um, requisitioned all the surviving uh, sago trees, which can be converted into an um, edible starch. Uh, and so everybody was put to work to uh, turn these trees into starch, um, and, uh, and they produced food which lasted them the six months until um, they managed to slowly recover. So, uh, so the political system, it's there, it works, um, even though it's quite puzzling. They, by, our, by the way, are cyclone-adjusted uh, folks. Every village has a cyclone house like this, a uh, cyclone shelter, uh, which are resistant to massive winds um, because they get them about every 10 years, they get a massive cyclone. So and I just wanted to make this point. It's been uh, very controversial as to whether uh, humans have adapted through uh, group selection, which means that um, by a process of... Um, uh, of not just individually, um, sur individual survival of the fittest, but also group survival. <laughs> uh, and uh, I think if you think about something like this um, and this kind of cyclone reaction, it's rather clear that humans, uh, by acting as collectivities, uh, uh, do um, survive uh, uh, as groups. This is, this is my scribbled um, uh, genealogy. Uh, from one guy. It actually runs to, uh, it's a great scroll uh, that has about nine uh, of these uh, sheets. <laughs> um, and on it, there are about uh, 600 names. And so this is one guy's genealogical knowledge. Uh, it goes 10 generations deep. Uh, and it's a vast, if you think uh, about it, it's uh, 600 people, he's able to, he knows the relationship between 600 uh, people and all of, everybody else. He thinks it's a massive uh, sort of uh, network that uh, he is um, completely in control of. Uh, and it's a system that um, uh, is complicated by the fact that, so, so this of course determines what kind of kin terms you can use to people, how you address them, how you talk to them and talk about them, 
and uh, there are about 50 such kin terms in this language. It's actually very complicated to use these, these, this terminology because the terms are sort of, uh, uh, are the, they, they go in alternating generations. You can maybe see this here um, across uh, genealogy. So it's a complicated system, but a kid of 10 will master this system. Uh, so, uh, so that's also kind of very interesting uh, uh, mental gymnastics. They have an elaborate Olympiad of gods. Uh, 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 they're thoroughly missionized these days, but uh, nevertheless, the, the old gods still survive. And, um, uh, and, the, and there's a, a mythology that rivals the Greek myths uh, for its uh, interest and complexity. Um, so they have no representational or visual art. And... Uh, Sometimes people, for example, archaeologists used to argue that Neanderthals couldn't have, you know, were subhuman essentially because they had apparently, or no visual art from them has survived. Uh, but uh, as you can see, I think from this kind of example, that uh, is not a good uh, condition, as it were, uh, for, human, for being human. So, but, um, uh, and they also have no sort of technology of applied color. Uh, and uh, as consequence, uh, they have a very primitive, only sort of half-baked uh, kinship uh, uh, color system. So here's a color chart, and um, of most of it, they have no names, no way to describe it at all. Um, and, uh, uh, and what names they have are, if you like, kind of metaphoric. Uh, so what they do have is a very elaborate verbal art. Uh, so many, uh, uh, half a dozen uh, major uh, genres of song. Um, what's interesting in ethnomusicologists is they have absolutely no musical instruments and they don't even use percussion. So, uh, so that um, is a very unusual feature, not reported actually else, elsewhere, but perhaps it's more common than we know. Uh, there they are singing. Uh, so, child-rearing is interesting because um, children, as actually many of these small groups, um, are wonderfully poised uh, little individuals. They are very well-adjusted, um, uh, brave and um, helpful, and uh, also just very competent. So, uh, you see them being given these very long messages to carry across the mountain uh, to a relative on the other side. Uh, and they, they're tested just to make sure they've got it verbatim, and then they're off they go. Um, uh, so they're sort of treated as mini-adults, and they run around and forage uh, a lot for themselves, um, uh, collecting nuts, for example, many of which have to be processed by elaborate procedures to render them edible. Uh, so they have to be uh, uh, baked and then leached for 10 days in a river and that sort of thing. So they're very able to do all of these things. Uh, and um, this little kid here uh, has just um, um, uh, performed in an all-night um, song fest, a sort of opera, light opera. Um, uh, and uh, he had to learn um, 30,000 words in just 10 um, all-night uh, rehearsals. So, and, and he has to do that because, uh, because uh, he has to be able to do it solo. Any single point, somebody can pull him out and say, do it again, uh, and because they love the way he sings. Uh, so, uh, so also sort of a very impressive uh, 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 memory feat. Okay, so look, this is just one small ethnic group. Um, but here you are uh, with the language with unique properties, uh, which really sort of changes our views about what a possible human language uh, would be. Um, they're pen potentially self-sufficient, but they've got this vast ethnobiological knowledge. Uh, you've got this uh, social order without any authority, these ten-generation-deep memories <laughs> about their genealogies, um, elaborate mythology, no visual art, but elaborate uh, verbal art, um, and so on and so forth. So uh, the, the point I think I want to make is, look, this is just one of thousands of these um, small groups that um, harbor many lessons for us, uh, and they're just in intrinsically interesting uh, in and of themselves. Good. Now, uh, I want to say something a little bit more general <laughs> about um, what we might be able to learn about human nature uh, by uh, looking uh, cross-culturally. And um, I should say um, just uh, right away that uh, 
when I, I use the, word, you know, the words human nature, one immediately invokes the sort of uh, nature-nurture dichotomies. Uh, and I think we've moved far beyond that these days, um, partly because of developments in epigenetics, the ways in which uh, the environment actually affects uh, the way the genes um, uh, operate. Uh, brain plasticity uh, that we've discovered that, that um, uh, uh, one, the, the brain is much more plastic, much more able to learn new tricks than uh, previously thought. And then the way in which during human development, these factors uh, um, play their uh, particular roles. So, um, so when, we can, when we're talking about human nature, uh, uh, I think what we're talking about is sort of Constraints and affordances on different ways of being, different ways of thinking. Uh, and, um, uh, and what we can use cross-cultural comparison to do is to sort of pinpoint the areas where humans are relatively flexible or relatively inflexible. You know, where they're relatively inflexible, we often talk about human universals, um, and where they're relatively flexible, sort of culture, cultural uh, specificities of one kind or another. Um, and now I want to consider sort of three um, domains of cognition, three um, areas of thought. Uh, um, and so they are sp spatial cognition, sensory perception, and social interaction. And just give you little vignettes uh, of what we can learn by looking cross-culturally uh, in these domains. So first, space. Um, so spatial uh, cognition has been, um, uh, well, sp sp thinking about space I w uh, has been a major preoccupation of Western philosophy and Western science uh, for a long time. Uh, so Newton um, introduced talk about absolute space. So uh, he was the first person to actually introduce, it seems perhaps amazing to us now, but the first person to introduce the idea of space as a um, uh, infinite void, as it were, uh, potentially devoid of anything. An <laughs> um, uh, 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 idea that took a lot, people found hard to accept. Uh, one of the folks who argued against him was Leibniz, uh, who argued that actually, uh, you know, space should be thought of as the relationship between things or places. Um, so you can have a sort of network of relationships uh, between things or places. So this was a relative conception of space, and Newton's was an absolute conception of space. These are the terms that have come down to us. Kant uh, um, uh, had a way of kind of combining these insights. So he held that we had uh, intuitions of the Newtonian sort. We intuitively <laughs> knew there was, you know, space had these kind of infinite properties. Uh, but in fact, for practical purposes, uh, we thought about space uh, in terms of uh, um, the relations between things. And in particular, we thought, think about space in terms of uh, the relationships between um, uh, the facets of our body. So we think about uh, space, things being to the left of us, to the right of us, uh, behind us or in front of us. And um, uh, Kant expressed this very clearly uh, here um, in this quote. But, um, and this view uh, became embodied in, the, uh, in most of Western thought about uh, the cognition of space. So, if you like, space is embodied for us. We think about it in terms of our, our body. Um, that's the, that has been the classical view. Uh, I have the privilege of working with Australian Aboriginals uh, in northern Queensland, um, uh, with a group that had been previously researched by John Haviland. Um, and uh, and these are, this is a group where people um, think and talk about space in terms of north, south, east, and west. Uh, and this is insistent in the language. So uh, about one in ten words is one of these cardinal direction terms. So north, south, east, and west. And, uh, and, they, and then it's supplemented with gestures, uh, which are... Um, uh, veridical in the sense that when they point somewhere, they mean exactly there. <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, and what's interesting about the, these folks is that they have no terms for left or right. They have a term for weak hand and strong hand, but they have no uh, use of these terms as, uh, as descriptions of regions, uh, of spatial locations. And so these are, if you like, um, 
you know, anti-Kantian uh, folks. Uh, they, um, uh, that's just not the way uh, they think. They're, they're Newtonians <laughs> uh, in their conception of space. So we went on um, and did quite a lot of work uh, on um, what are called frames of spatial reference. So these are coordinate systems that people use to describe where one thing is with its relationship to another. And um, so uh, if you wanted to, for example, to say, you know, where the ball is in relation to the chair here, there are lots of different, well, actually there's three main classes of solutions and then a number of subclasses, which we won't go into. The three main classes are these. The first um, is uh, um, the, uh, the sort of Kantian solution. So we import our body axes with us, and we're going to describe that ball as being to the right of the chair. Uh, another solution uh, is to imagine the chair as having intrinsic coordinate system of its own, in which case we can talk about the ball being in front of the chair. Um, and a third solution is to imagine the kind of gradient in the environment, uh, and then we can talk about the ball as being west of the chair, as appropriate. <laughs> um, and so these actually, these are the three main classes of solution, uh, cross-linguistically, uh, and um, I'll concentrate particularly on the relative one, that's the left-right one, and the absolute one, the north-south one. So what we uh, have noticed is that the distribution of these uh, different ways of talking are not, is not random. So hunter-gatherers, uh, foragers, tend uh, to use this absolute system, the north-south-east-west system, and that's because it's a better system if you're working in vast, pathless spaces. Whereas urban dwellers uh, tend to use the left-right system because it's a better system if you're working in the sort of rabbit warren of uh, cities. Uh, and, um, and, of course, it, it affords literacy, traffic rules, and all sorts of other things. Um, these systems are kind of highly practiced because we're all the time uh, using one or other of the systems to describe where things are and to think about where things are. And uh, they're also sort of built into the environment in the case of the left-right systems. Um, and uh, not all languages use all of these three. Some of them really preoccupied, like we are very much preoccupied with the left-right uh, left one. <laughs> um, and the aboriginals totally preoccupied with the uh, north-south-east-west one. Uh, and this turns out to have you know, really quite deep consequences on how people think about space. So um, let's just... Um, uh, so this is just a map of the, kind of the different systems that we have investigated one time or another around the world. Um, and I'll just take you to uh, an example um, uh, nicely studied uh, that contrasts uh, Dutch usage, which is just the same as ours, left-right uh, type system, um, with a um, San hunter-gatherer group here uh, in Namibia. And this work was done by um, Daniel Hound, who's in the audience somewhere, um, and uh, a colleague, Christian Rappel. And uh, so the group in question are the Haikom, uh, who um, uh, live in northern Namibia. They're scattered in lots of small groups um, around a large, uh, huge area. Uh, and um, to investigate how people think about space, here's a very simple way. So you get, um, you, you get people to observe a row of animals on a table. Uh, and you say, now, remember the order. So different colored animals. Uh, remember the order. Uh, and then you uh, rotate them and make them uh, reproduce the array on another table, but uh, under, under rotation. And now there are two sort of obvious solutions to this. You either rotate your coordinates with you uh, and think about the row as heading left like that, um, or instead you translate the um, uh, array, uh, array across the table uh, and think about the, array, uh, the, the three animals as heading south or as appropriate. So, um, so Daniel did these very nice uh, matched uh, uh, tests between the Dutch kids in a village. Um, there's the Dutch school and there's the, the, the school in Namibia. Um, and 
with the table at one end of the schoolhouse and, uh, and another table at the other end, uh, and the kids um, uh, were tested on one table, uh, well, they saw the array on one table and then taken right round to the other end of the building and, and tested on the other. Um, and so there were eight-year-olds uh, in both locations, so it was sort of really nicely matched uh, in the little experiment. What did he find? Well, he found that the Dutch kids uh, always did the animals in the left, right way. Um, he always, uh, they always used their own uh, uh, embodied coordinates, whereas the Haikom kids always used, or nearly always, uh, used uh, the uh, north-south uh, solution. So now some folks, uh, some uh, colleagues had uh, really doubted whether this could really be true, uh, thinking that there would be one universal human solution to spatial uh, uh, cognition. Um, so they thought, oh, this is just a skin-deep effect. So Daniel then um, uh, pushed the, the kids to, uh, uh, to remember a much more complicated array like this. Um, and so they saw this little array, then it was uh, demolished, um, and they had to make the array on uh, the table at the other end of the, uh, of the schoolhouse. This is the solution that you or I would do. Um, uh, this one is even a little bit mind-boggling, um, because you, in, in a way, <laughs> you're imagining the array from the other side. Um, Nevertheless, that's exactly that, uh, what the Haikon kids do. Actually, they're more, now even more um, resolute in their north-south <laughs> solution than they were before. Uh, and then Daniel went on to, um, uh, to, to see whether he could train people, the kids up to do it the other way, whatever the way which wasn't their customary way. Can, could he train them up? And the answer was no. <laughs> uh, they got more or less random results. So um, then they went on to do a, uh, um, a, a study which, uh, again, is a little bit mind-boggling. So he trained, uh, with Christian, he trained our uh, kids to do a very simple dance routine. And then, once they'd learnt it, rotated them, and you can just see a, a Haikon kid doing this. It's uh, quite fun. It'll take a little moment because uh, he has to train the, the kid up to do a little dance. Okay. Okay. Now we've got to get the kid up to criterion, so we definitely can do it. Now he's rotated. So, of all the things you would think you would, you know, lay down in memory um, in terms of north, south, east, and west. Doing a dance routine is <laughs> the last thing that you would imagine. Uh, and um, uh, so I think it's a kind of astonishing um, evidence of, and, and Daniel went on to show that German kids, you know, just do it the way you and I would. <laughs> so um, um, let me just summarize uh, this little vignette so about uh, human spatial cognition. So it, human cognition in this domain isn't fixed, as people had thought. Um, it is var variable, um, and um, it varies largely in relation with the language and the ecology that that language is adapted to, um, and that was certainly news to psychologists at the time. Uh, in fact, some still resist it, um, uh, because it, is, uh, it has been quite shocking, in a way, <laughs> to our views about you know, uh, universal human nature. Um, uh, but anyway, this is the kind of finding that one could only find out by um, you know, looking cross-culturally. There isn't another way to do this. 
Let me just turn to another domain now, so sensory perception. So um, there's um, a feeling that, um, that, uh, that uh, we have different kind of conscious accessibility of the different senses. So, for example, um, for vision, you know, we're able uh, for shapes um, or for colors uh, to name them easily. Uh, but um, if you come to olfaction uh, and, you, uh, and you try to kind of think about uh, the names for different smells and so on, you very rapidly find you know, you're out of room. <laughs> and, uh, um, and people have thought about this a lot and thought about, well, maybe this has to do with the fact that um, the, the way in which the olfactory senses are wired uh, is directly um, um, uh, into um, the sort of subbrain, whereas the uh, you know vision is cortical, um, and uh, so olfaction is more limbic, goes into the um, limbic system. Uh, and so on the basis of this, folks have said um, things like this, uh, that you know, there's no semantic field of smells, um, it's a little special value across cultures and so on and so forth. So it's a, a sort of degraded sense is the view. Uh, Aristotle had a lot to say about this <laughs> 2,000 years ago, um, and he um, had a kind of hierarchy of the senses, where the distal senses were the noble senses, um, and the base senses were the proximal senses, and we have um, um, uh, sort of conscious accessibility to the distal senses, but much less so to the proximal ones he held, and the proximal ones were therefore sort of um, ineffable. Um, we lacked a sort of terminology for them. And so uh, we were interested in whether actually this holds up cross-culturally. So along with us from Majid, we ran... Um, a kind of big cross-cultural study which involved a lot of people um, with 23 languages uh, around the world uh, and with a systematic set of stimuli for the different senses. And uh, what the questions that we were asking is, you know, how do people actually describe um, uh, a particular sense stimulus? So are there words at all? Are they abstract words like sweet or red? Um, are they source-based like sugary? Uh, or orange, <laughs> uh, or are they evaluative, you know, like uh, nice? Um, and, uh, and then we also went on uh, to ask, uh, and I'll and concentrate on this, uh, are they consistently used? Are, are people able to, in a community, to consistently describe uh, a sense stimulus, um, you know, with one um, particular uh, term, like red? So, uh, for English, um, uh, the, this is a codability hierarchy, so just a, a, an index of the way to which, uh, a, a, the extent to which um, a particular sense stimulus is codable. And um, this uh, is uh, color uh, stimuli, um, and here are shape stimuli, so two visual stimuli, types of visual stimuli. These were auditory stimuli, so, um, so loud sounds, um, soft sounds, high sounds, low sounds, long and short, and so on. Um, and then there were uh, tactile stimuli, rough and smooth, uh, uh, and, uh, and so on, and, and basic uh, taste stimuli, uh, and then smell stimuli. So, uh, so these, these, uh, these kits were carried around the world, off to different um, ethnic groups. Uh, so, as you can see, the English uh, uh, codability hierarchy pretty much fits the Aristotelian presumption. So, um, the, uh, the vision is top, um, audition second, and then you've got these distal senses being somehow less codable. Um, this is the results of the 23 <laughs> languages. You won't be able to see very much here, but there's English on the bottom here, and you can what you can just uh, see is that not all languages look the same at all. Um, and I'll just uh, uh, sort of expand. Um, there's English again, just for reference, with the Aristotelian hierarchy. So here's Russell Island, Yelitnia, that um, uh, island I was talking about at the beginning. Uh, and you can see it's got a completely different sort of inverse, uh, almost inverse hierarchy. So overall, what we found is that many languages, uh, in many languages, taste outranks vision for codability. Hearing is surprisingly ineffable in many languages. And smell, it's true, is mostly 
poorly coded, and you can see that here, but there are some amazing exceptions. And so I'll just um, uh, take you to one of them. So this is a study by Asfer Majid and Nicholas Bernholt um, and uh, of odor coding in a language called Jahai. Uh, Jahai um, is a hunter-gatherer um, language, uh, one of a number uh, of the Aslian uh, languages uh, spoken here in Malaysia by a group of just about 1,000 hunter-gatherers living in the tropical jungle here. And, um, uh, and um, what they found was that these guys have abstract smell terms that uh, describe odorous uh, you know, factors that, we, that are very unobvious. Um, for example, um, so here, um, this um, uh, plant and uh, a soap and a bear cat here and durian fruit um, uh, are all thought to have this, uh, you know, essentially the same odor, <laughs> or at least uh, could be categorized as having the same odor. Um, and, uh, and Haet here describes uh, shrimp paste and tiger smell and fresh rubber smell. Poos uh, here, uh, hornbill and a particular species of mushroom and uh, boiled cabbage and so on, all, of the, all sharing these. So, uh, <laughs> odor factors here, very unobvious to us exactly what lies behind this. Um, but they're able to, to systematically use these terms and people understand um, what they mean. So, they um, um, uh, clearly have a descriptive vocabulary for smell. They have about uh, 15 of these terms. If you just go back, we just go take, take us back to that sort of comparative study, um, then you can see that here's the English with the, the codability of color versus odor. And, um, and now you compare Jahai, and, uh, and you can see that for them, although they, they, their performance is not as strong because they're uh, uh, non-literate peoples working, <laughs> no, it used to being tested in the same way, but, uh, but you can see that for them, uh, odor and color are just as codable as each other. Um, if you look at actually how we code uh, these, you can see that um, that color in English is code with abstract terms like red and blue. They don't mean anything else. That's what they mean. Um, but, um, but for odor, we rely on source, sources. So we say uh, lemon smell or smell of a rose. Uh, if you look at Jahai, though, uh, they're using abstract terms um, for both color and smell equally. So it's a very different system. And the point is it's clear that um, there is a potential to have a uh, purely abstract uh, smell terminology. So, neuroanatomy uh, isn't going to determine um, uh, sensual perception in the way that I think a lot of folks had imagined. Um, it certainly doesn't fully determine sort of access to conscious uh, discrimination and to language. And uh, rather, each language has got its own codability hierarchy, um, and which is uh, part of, the, um, uh, of what's being transmitted over time um, uh, by culture. It's part of the adaptation uh, that a culture makes to its local ecology. La my last vignette uh, concerns um, um, interactive language use. And uh, so here's a domain where folks have thought that um, language structure has a strong universal um, base. Um, Chomsky is famous for holding this. Uh, in contrast, it had been thought by the ethnographers of speaking that there's a very wide cultural diversity in different uses of language, which is true as far as it goes. But uh, if you invert these expectations, I think you get much nearer to the truth. <laughs> That's to say, um, there seem to be actually now we know a lot more about um, the extent of linguistic diversity around the world. We know that languages differ on every possible dimension. Um, it seems that there are only weak structural biases uh, as far as language structure is concerned, but there seem to be strong universal base for core language use. By core language use, I mean use of language in the interactional niche. Um, this is conversational chat, if you like. Uh, this is the primary form of language use. Uh, it's the matrix for language acquisition. 
uh, before writing, of course, it, it's uh, the primary, <laughs> absolutely the primary uh, um, use of language, um, and it still actually is the bulk of um, where language is used. It's strikingly similar uh, across languages. Um, there are many ways in which it's similar, which I can't go into, but, uh, but for example, the way sequences of terms that talk are organized, so I ask you a question, you provide an answer, and so on. Uh, in very detailed ways, these are um, similar across uh, cultures. Similarly, the way if, uh, if I didn't, don't understand what you say, um, and I go, huh? Um, uh, then that very word is more or less identical <laughs> uh, uh, across languages, uh, and, um, uh, and, and so on and so forth. There are many ways in which this, um, uh, the, the kind of basic organization here um, appears actually uh, really to be strong and universal. But I'm just going to look at the uh, rapid turn-taking which characterizes uh, this phenomenon. So when we're just chatting, we exchange turns at an amazing rate. Now, what's interesting about this is if you contrast this to um, language organization. So um, languages uh, can be, we owe this uh, to Chomsky, uh, can be thought of as a kind of giant bridge from a sound system to a meaning system, where the bridge um, is a, a set of combinatorial, combinatorial uh, possibilities. So languages vary um, in having either as little as 12 sounds or as many as 140 sounds. Um, they, they, uh, they take those sounds and build parts of words, we call those morphemes, uh, and the morphemes are built uh, into words, and the words are built into sentences, and so that's all of the combinatorics that goes on. Uh, uh, and the meanings, um, those operations are variable across languages, and the meanings that you get out at the end are variable across languages. So none of that uh, looks remotely uh, universal. There are 7,000 variants of that. Um, but you look at this turn-taking, uh, where you know, A says something, B says something, A says something, B says something, A says something, B says something. That uh, you'll see in language after language, you'll never see any difference uh, in informal chat. That's how it works. What's interesting about this, actually, is the precision and speed of it. So, uh, so um, sometimes there are longer gaps, sometimes there are short overlaps, but um, on the whole, we end up with a 200 millisecond gap. I say something, and 200 milliseconds later, you say something. Um, and th that is actually astonishingly fast. Um, and it's actually very precise, but um, uh, we needn't go into that. So we just check this out on a worldwide basis, um, looking at 10 languages from seven different language families with different word orders and so on. Uh, and you'll see the, exactly the same sort of graphs um, for response times um, across languages. Interestingly, it's even true of sign languages where um, some of the same constraints uh, of me speaking over you, masking what you're saying, um, don't hold, uh, but still you get exactly the same um, sort of pattern. So we sort of think that there's a deep kind of temporal metabolism here uh, that is showing up in language after language uh, and um, uh, could be a sort of ancient layer, uh, as I'm suggesting, in, in sort of human communicative ethology. Um, An interesting extra wrinkle on this is just that, um, that actually uh, the language production system is very slow uh, by psycholinguistic standards, by psychological standards. So it takes you from the moment that you think of the word that you want to say till the moment anything comes out of your mouth, it'll take you 600 milliseconds, so well over half a second. Um, uh, if you want to say a short sentence like, Mary kiss John or whatever, um, it'll take you one and a half seconds. Uh, this is the coding time. This is how long the encoding takes in the mind. So um, if you plug those numbers back into um, uh, Anne and Bob chatting here, uh, what you can see is that, um, that Bob here, in order to respond within 200 milliseconds, has got to have actually predicted uh, the end of what Anne's done is, uh, and, um, and then started coding up his response. It's the only way you can pull this off. 
and um, uh, so, so this actually puts a kind of big, yeah, we know this from doing EEG and complicated um, uh, uh, things. So, uh, but, um, um, but, but the, the question then arises, you know, why do we have a system like this? Why do we have these generally very short turns, at about one to two seconds usually, um, and, uh, and then with a very short turnaround, and then we are cramming the most complex material uh, into these uh, short turns, which is pushing, you know, the human um, cognitive system to its very limits. This is really tough stuff. Uh, we're, of course, very used to it, so <laughs> we can do it. But, um, but it is a question sort of worth asking, and it does suggest there's a, some sort of modularity. Yeah, there are two systems. There's a turn-taking system, uh, and then there's the language system, and there, somehow uh, the language system has been... Uh, gradually evolved on top of a, uh, of a pre-existing uh, sort of temporal base. Now you can get a little bit of evidence um, uh, for this uh, by looking uh, at uh, both the ontogeny and phylogeny um, of the system, so in human development and in um, development in evolutionary time. So here is um, a study of kids' turn-taking from three months up to three and a half years. And what you'll see here is that early on, kids are, are very fast. Um, now, these, these are infants, of course, they're not saying anything sensible, they're cooing and ahhing, <laughs> uh, but it's these vocal noises uh, being done in response to mum, and, um, and the responses are fast. Once language kicks in, the whole system gets slow. Uh, and that's because, of course, the core kids are learning to do this of cramming complicated stuff into short, these short little turns. Uh, and in fact, kids don't catch up with adults until um, uh, way into late middle childhood. So this again suggests, you know, uh, that, they're, that, that somehow the two systems are a little bit independent. So the turn-taking system might have been there earlier. <laughs> um, and um, by the way, we're just checking this out now, um, cross-culturally, just to be sure about this, the developmental uh, thing. This is a, a project being run by Marisa Casillas here. But, um, uh, but now if you look phylogenetically, so now we look at, ac across the whole primate order, what you'll see is that um, this is patchy. That's to say only a few species in a clade, a, a, a major branch of the family, uh, will um, actually be a, a vocal turn taker, but in every uh, such branch you can find vocal turn takers. Um, there they all are with the red stars, including us. What's interesting is that the great apes are not vocal turn takers. They don't, they're not actually into voluntary vocalizations at all. Uh, uh, but what they do do is uh, they have quite an elaborate gesture system. Um, uh, and um, and those gestures uh, have exactly the same temporal properties um, in turn-taking uh, as the um, human turn-taking system. So it does suggest that there, uh, uh, you know, that there is some kind of evolutionary story here. <coughs> anyway, so just to um, um, summarize that uh, um, about uh, the sort of universals of interaction, I think it would make sense to have such a sort of uh, foundation um, uh, for communication, to have this kind of fixed base, because kids can uh, e uh, extrapolate from this fixed base. They can gradually learn the local language that's around them, because they're already provided with a, um, a sort of fundamental temporal um, mechanism. And I think it also helps to explain, uh, then, you know, how um, languages can vary as much as they do. Um, and as I said, it offers some kind of uh, um, uh, phylogenetic precursors to language, which is, it, it, because language is always the, the, uh, the you know, the uh, great chasm between us and the beasts. Uh, uh, but in actual fact, in this sort of way, I think you can see there are um, uh, connections uh, through to uh, the rest of our um, of the primate order. So that's an unexpected finding, again, that came from cross-cultural research. So just to conclude now, um, 
I think that we should uh, champion the gifts of cultural diversity uh, in this xenophobic age, that uh, every culture is a natural experiment um, in ways of being that's evolved over deep time, and it's got many lessons for us. Uh, the, and I think the sort of systematic comparison uh, can help us to pinpoint ways in which human cognition uh, is flexible in some respects and inflexible in others. Uh, and, and, uh, and in this case, you know, we've got diversity where we didn't expect it in space and uh, perception, and we've got universals where we had expected diversity um, in verbal interaction. And um, so that just shows you, I think, how important the cross-cultural perspective is. But this window of opportunity for this kind of work is disappearing at a rapid rate because the small groups, which are the reservoir of cultural diversity, are under um, extreme threat at the moment. Um, it's hard to be sure of exactly what rate languages are disappearing, but estimates vary you know, um, in this sort of range, that by the end um, of the century, there'll be, the most pessimistic is there will 90% of language and ethnic diversity will have disappeared. The most optimistic is that 50% uh, of that diversity will have gone. Um, uh, here's a map with um, the red dots um, are all the endangered uh, languages um, at the moment. Uh, so uh, language loss is a kind of index of, um, you know, the loss of all of this cultural diversity. Uh, and um, it's really uh, important that we use this sort of vanishing window into human nature while we're still able to. Thank you very much. I just want to thank my uh, research group um, who made this possible. Thank you.